Hey guys, Eric here. Bloody Good Horror is taking a week off this week, just some summer stuff going on. We will be back next week, and until then, enjoy this episode of BGH Presents Plug It Up, uh, the show by our very own Caitlin and friends. This episode is about the seminal classic The Exorcist and Alyssa, who runs the BGH Book Club, guests on the show. So check it out. Don't forget to follow them at Plug It Up Pod on social media and search for Plug It Up in your favorite podcast app. That's it for now. We'll see you guys next week. If it's leaking and you're freaking, plug it up, plug it up, plug it up. Hello. Welcome back to Plug It Up, a podcast about the monstrous menstruation trope in horror. I'm your host, Caitlin Grant. As a reminder, monstrous menstruation is a trope in horror movies where a character gets their period and either simultaneously or in consequence undergoes a monstrous transformation of some kind. The best known examples of the trope are Carrie and Ginger Snaps, but there are lots of instances of this trope in the genre. In this podcast, we talk a lot about coming of age, puberty, menstruation, and gender, and we want to recognize and acknowledge that not all people who menstruate identify as women, and not all folks who identify as women menstruate. So any general uses of she, her pronouns, and discussions about women menstruating stem from the depiction of characters on screen and aren't meant to generalize or pigeonhole gender or menstruation. Today, I am joined again by friend of the podcast, Alyssa. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Oh, that was perfect. Today, we are covering The Exorcist, the, the big daddy, the big mommy, the big daddy, the big baby. I don't know. The it's big, a biggin. The great Pazuzu. The great Pazuzu, The Exorcist. And Alyssa, I am so glad. I mean, I'm glad that you're here anytime, but I'm especially glad that you're here for The Exorcist. I'm stoked. It's literally, it's one of my favorite movies of all time, and it is my favorite horror movie. I love it. I love it. I love it. So... The Exorcist, holy crap, we're here, we're doing it. <laughs> the Exorcist was originally a book by William Peter Blatty. Um, Alyssa has read the book a couple times, so I'll give her some space to give us insight on that later on. But first, I'll give a synopsis here at the top. Um, I will say that the novel was adapted for the screen by the author, William Peter Blatty, and the movie's director, William Friedkin. And the book itself is said to retell the events of a 1949 possession an exorcism of a young boy. So we're kind of looking at like a loosely based on a true story deal. But anyway, so the film opens in Iraq where a veteran Catholic priest named Lancaster Marin oversees an archeological dig. At the dig, a sculpture of an, the ancient demon Pazuzu is uncovered and Father Marin is visibly shaken. We see him struggle to move past the discovery as he wanders through the city. So then we cut to the meat of the movie. So the bulk of the movie stars Ellen Burstyn as Chris McNeil, an actress stationed in the Georgetown neighborhood of Washington, D.C. to shoot a film. Chris is going through a divorce and is in Georgetown with her 12-year-old daughter, Reagan, played by Linda Blair, as well as two housekeepers and a nanny. While Chris is away shooting the film, Reagan discovers a Ouija board and makes contact with an entity that she calls Captain Howdy. Uh, we assume that the Ouija board is how Reagan comes to be possessed. It's not ever, like... A to B spelled out, but that's sort of the, I guess, what we're supposed to infer. Um, her behavior changes significantly and rapidly, so Chris takes her to several doctors to figure out what's going on. Despite numerous diagnostic tests, there doesn't seem to be anything physiologically wrong with Reagan, so the doctors prescribe Ritalin and send them home. At home, things just get worse. Reagan's bed shakes and bucks, and she becomes hateful and violent. Eventually, uh, one of Reagan's doctors suggests that there could be something spiritually wrong with Reagan, and Chris McNeil seeks help from priests. She enlists an initially unwilling priest, Dr. Damien Karras. He's a priest who also happens to be a psychiatrist. Uh, Father Karras is reluctant at first because he doesn't seem to believe much in demonic possession and because he's going through his own shit with the recent death of his mother. Chris finally convinces Karis to observe Reagan and also confides in him that whatever is possessing Reagan killed the director on the set she's working on. Shaken by what he's seen and heard, he accepts. Reagan grows increasingly violent. She masturbates with a crucifix and assaults her mom. She begins to projectile vomit. She moves furniture and she begins to smell. The temperature in her room drops to freezing and eventually she must be tied to the bed. 
Faced with what he knows will be a challenge, Father Karras enlists the help of an experienced exorcist, Father Marin, from the beginning of the film in Iraq. Together, the two priests embark on the ancient rites of exorcism in order to save Reagan. This proves incredibly challenging, as the demon is strong and is able to provoke Karras by mentioning his recently deceased mother. Father Marin asks Father Karras to take a break and continues the exorcism alone. And when Karras returns, he finds Marin dead and the demon slash Reagan giggling. Exasperated, Karras commands the demon out of Reagan, saying, take me! The demon moves from Reagan to Karras and we see him overcome with possession. He moves towards Reagan as if to harm her, but Karras fights back and launches himself out the window, falling down the famous staircase. As he lays dying, another priest gives him his last rites and he passes. And the movie concludes with Chris and Reagan's departure from Georgetown with Reagan recovered and having no memory of the events. And that's the quick and dirty of The Exorcist. Did I do a good job, Alyssa? <laughs> yeah, that was actually really great. I liked the whole bit about Father Karras dealing with his own shit. <laughs> <laughs> he was. I mean, they we spend a, a decent amount of time with Father Karras and his mom before she passes. And I don't know, it, it's, you know, it builds for us, it, you know. It's it's part of it. Anyway, so there's a lot to talk about here from production to themes to reception and trivia. But Alyssa, I know this is your favorite horror movie and you have lots of thoughts on the movie as a whole. So lay on me. What do you think about The Exorcist just as a movie? It is a perfect movie. It's so good. <laughs> I, I first saw it when I was like 11. So incredibly young. I watched it with my big sister and I liked it even then. There was a lot that I didn't understand that like went over my head. Um, still haunted by the crucifix scene. I was like, did the let Jesus fuck you part? <laughs> um, I understood what was going on there. I didn't like it. I was, but it's just, I grew up raised in like a Southern Baptist, but not like super Bible thumpy home. But I went to a Christian school but around this age, I started having a crisis of faith. Mm-hmm. And so I think I watched that movie at the at a, an interesting time in my life. And it just kind of grabbed me because I think that faith is like the center theme of the film. And I just, I think it's, it's well-directed. It's well-acted. The soundtrack is impeccable. Mm. I don't know. I just, I've always really loved this movie. I think... Well, I rewatched it on Friday with our friend who had never seen it before. And I'm just watching it. And then I'm realizing I see why this movie was so scary to people. Yeah. In the seventies. It, it's a scary, movie. like it doesn't scare me not necessarily, but it is a scary movie. This concept of like rapid change is terrifying. It's like the rapid change, hurting the people that you love and not realizing it or being able to control it. I I don't remember when I first saw this. I remember it's always kind of been like a part of my horror, I guess, brain. (laughs) And I had the DVD and I've had this DVD for forever. And I remember I watched it. I don't know. I think this DVD, the version that I have came out in like 2003 or four, and I've had it since then. And I remember one day I was watching it and the DVD in the DVD player was like, and it started freaking out and I was like shit's possessed and I didn't play it again for like five ten years so um yeah so it's significant even though I had seen it like a million times and I was like well this dvd is haunted and it scared me even then so it's so good it's a perfect movie it is and when you were watching it with our friend Cheryl is Cheryl a horror person um working on it (laughs) <laughs> Cheryl, Cheryl threw up I don't want to put Cheryl on blast but Cheryl threw up watching Paranormal Activity oh, because no. like the camera it was mostly like the camera work yeah um, I think I think she's more like kind of indifferent she's not necessarily a horror fan but she's seen quite a lot and before we watched the movie she was like I've never seen it but I know so much through like cultural osmosis yeah it's a touchstone and like I explained to her that the spider walk wasn't in the original theatrical release. And she was like, but that's like one of the only things I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, was there anything that came up for you and watch it? Cause it, I mean, I know you've seen this movie plenty of times, but when you were watching it with a first timer, any, anything that came up that you were like, Oh shit, I forgot about that. I was kind of, I mean, after watching, so I watched that William Friedkin um, interview documentary 
leap of faith. Yeah. Leap of faith, like two days before. And so I learned so much about the film that this time I'm like paying attention to the things that he talked about. Like there's this one specific scene of father Karis, like laying in bed and it gets really, really dark, but you can see his face like uplit. And I was like, it does look like a Rembrandt painting. (laughs) I kept telling things to Cheryl. And then I kept looking at her like, like like every five minutes I was like, do you like it so far? I was probably very obnoxious. And then like, cause we, it was such, it's long. The director's cut's like two hours long. Yeah, it's long. And, and it was late and we had like both worked that day. So she she was like laying there and kind of falling asleep. And I was like, Cheryl, wake up. It's almost over. You gotta pay attention. It's important. This is my favorite movie. <laughs> That's what's always hard when you're showing someone something that you love so much. You're like, no, 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 no. Watch, but like really watch. <laughs> watch extra. <laughs> Listen to the sounds in the background. <laughs> It is a perfect movie. I I wholeheartedly agree with you. It's it's obviously important to horror. It's really important to me. So many iconic images and lines. I think probably the most iconic image being that of Father Marin arriving in Georgetown, you know, up in the purple mist, just silhouetted perfectly. Tubular bells being the theme. I mean, that's pretty recognizable to even folks that maybe not have not seen it yet. And honestly, it spawned a whole subgenre of possession and exorcism horror. So it's like super significant. And for me, another iconic line is the, your mother sucks cock in hell. I don't know. Oh. If- <laughs> the fact that I, like the thing I was the most excited about watching this with Cheryl was like, now you'll understand what I mean. Because like, <laughs> I don't know why, but sometimes I just say it. Like I was like, your mother sucks cocks in hell. <laughs> Or I, I literally walked around after my cat today going, why you do this to me, Demi? <laughs> She's a cat. She doesn't know what that was. Why you do this to me, Demi? I, it's, and that's like so sad every time I watch it. Because like, okay. I'll quote that sometimes too, but I'm like, oh, fuck, that really does pull at my heart. Like the poor mom. Will you help an old lot boy, father? <laughs> <laughs> it's, got, it's got some good lines. It's very quotable. I also very frequently do, do you know what she did? <laughs> <laughs> Y'all cunting daughter. <laughs> the sow is mine. I say that one a lot. So. <laughs> it's, it's like the demon's lines, man. Pazuzu's got some bars. <laughs> <laughs> Pazuzu, I, I really like the do you know what she did? Y'all cunting daughter. And I like... I don't know when when Father Karras asks him to, I guess, pull the drawer out or again or to like oh, what a vulgar too, too vulgar too, display yeah. of power. God, yes. that line is so good. Yeah, yeah. Or like in due time, in due time. I like those so much. Um, it'll bring us closer together. You and Reagan? No, you and us. And like, flirty. So, and then like, well, it's like you think about what happens at the end. That's so the oh, the foreshadowing, man. It's delicious. I love this movie. It's a perfect movie. I I always felt somewhat connected to it because, so I live in Richmond, Virginia, which is not too far from DC. And this movie takes place in Georgetown. And it's one of the only DC movies that's not a political thriller that I, and it's like, it's a horror movie in DC it's that not, I feel. You mean all the president's men isn't a horror movie? <laughs> and the fact that it's I mean. boring. <laughs> And, you know, like the exorcist steps are there. I have friends that go running down them like crazy people. Um, I'll go. I won't run, but I'll go. Yeah, I don't run. I'm fat. I don't go nowhere. (laughs) I'll look at them. They're very steep. But I I just, like you said, it's cast really well. The If you haven't seen Leap of Faith, it's the documentary interview with... William Friedkin, the director, it's like two hours, it's on Shudder, and it's really good. It's it, it really shows how thoughtful he was about the production and also talks about like how problematic he was with this production, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But really, like his vision and his general understanding of art and human connection to art is so impressive, and it really comes through. Yeah, like um, he's super pretentious, but also he's <laughs> right. He he is pretentious and he and and he can write. What throws me off, because I've watched Leap of Faith on Shudder like probably three times total now. He, to me, has the cadence and voice of Trump, and it's so distracting sometimes. (laughs) Yes, I agree. But it's like, I will watch because he's so good. Where is he from? I'm going to Google it. I think he was from Chicago. We talked about growing up in Chicago. But I also 
want to say before we get into to production stuff, book stuff, I love the Exorcist TV series and highly recommend at least season one. Um, and that is on Hulu. The second season, the first season ties into the Exorcist movie, to this movie. Um, and season two is a departure, but I definitely recommend. I know that it's probably problematic to say, but the priest in that show is really hot. Yeah. I mean, he's just an actor. He's not an actual priest. <laughs> he's really hot. Two of the actors in this movie were priests slash actors. Yes. <laughs> love, a, love a hot priest. Isn't that a thing on some other show, Fleabag or something? Uh, yeah. It's like, uh, what is his name? I, I know that, that it's kind of like a lot of people find it incredibly offensive, like talking about like hot priest, hot sexy nun, whatever. Um, they, there was a charity uh, calendar coming out of Rome for a while. Do you know what I'm talking about? The hot priest calendar? It's the hot priest calendar. Well, it's, a, it's a photographer who took pictures of priests and many of them just happen to be very handsome. It's not necessarily the hot priest calendar, but, um, but that's what it has come yeah, to be. Yeah, I have it. I have the hot priest <laughs> calendar from like 2017 or something. Amazing. I love it. So I just wanted out there that I am not trying to be insensitive to people of the Catholic faith. Sometimes priests are just hot, not because they're priests. If you have a priest fetish, we won't shame you. We will follow up with questions, but we won't. Yeah, shame I'm you. curious. Um, <laughs> sometimes priests are just hot. I don't know. Well, yeah, I would. I would definitely recommend the Exorcist TV series. It's it's one that I come back to a lot, and it is legitimately scary at some points. It's got a conspiracy that goes straight to the top. It's like got a lot of the things that I love in a in a series, but. Okay, before we jump into production and trivia, because there is a ton of trivia for this movie. I So I have not read The Exorcist book. I know that Friedkin talked about how Blatty originally really butchered his novel to adapt it for film, and Friedkin told him no, and they went back to the drawing board to bring more of the spirit of the novel to the screen. So I was going to ask you if you found that to be the case. Um and sort of like, what what should we know? What should us dum-dums know about the book that haven't read it? So I read it twice now. I just finished rereading it today. William Friedkin in Leap of Faith mentioned that he like heavily annotated a copy. I would give anything to read it. I want to read that <laughs> so bad. I, um, you, you can see shots of it too. So it's like, it's there. I'm like, give it to me, William. I need to read the book. I would literally like, if they released it as like a special edition because like they they released it they re-released it for like the 40th anniversary give me another one 50th anniversary when's that gonna be 70, 83 93 2013 in two years it'll be 50 years holy shit holy shit <laughs> well this year it's 50 years of the book damn um, so in 2023 it'll be 50 unless i i mean i have dyscalculia i shouldn't try counting but it sounds right but uh, it is actually incredibly similar to the book. A lot of the lines directly lifted. The book is more intense and a little more disgusting. A lot of diarrhea. Because oh. um, towards, by this point, there's also a little bit more about Reagan's physical condition in the book. She's like emaciated. And there's a whole part there. And there's a part in the film where he, where Damien is very concerned about her heart. Yeah, that's actually there's more detail in the book um, because of the medications that they're giving Reagan. They're giving her these like incredibly high doses of these like sedatives and stuff. And it's affected her heart. And so he brings in like a or like a what is it? Cardiologist mm -hmm. and to look at her heart and, be, and the heart. And he was like, if she doesn't sleep because the Pazuzu was like keeping her awake for like three or four days straight. And he was like, her heart is going to give out. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more about her physical. Um, the physical effects of the possession and the masturbation scene is more disgusting. Jesus. It's more like kind of gory almost. And you also get a lot more of the um, Burke Dennings personality. Like he pops up like almost every time they go and talk to Reagan, it's this annoying British man coming up. So for those of you that might not remember, Burke Dennings is the director on Chris McNeil's set where she's, you know, acting and things like that. And in the movie, he he dies off screen. So we come to know, come to assume, I guess, rather that Reagan possessed, pushed him out her window and he died. And that's sort of the first death that we get, you know, besides Damien's mom. So like, 
he only has like I don't know maybe a handful of scenes in the movie so it's interesting that he's so present in the book because he is the scenes that he's in in the movie are his super obnoxious yeah and I, something else and there's also there's quite a few plot points that they didn't include in the movie that I kind of wish they had um at the party there's one woman that you see who's wearing like a dark dress you know who I'm talking about? I think so. Um, she, I mean, she's over by the piano when they're singing. And yeah, stuff, yeah. Man. And she, she, you see her in multiple scenes, like talking to Chris and talking to Father Dyer. Oh, yeah. I know who you're talking about. The yeah. astronaut guy. So she's actually a lot more important in the first half of the book. She's a medium. And I think it's very interesting that they just cut that out of the film, probably for time. But it was very interesting because she gives Chris a book about like witchcraft and spiritualism that in turn fuels some of Reagan's symptoms and it causes like doubt because they're like, Oh, is she, is she just pretending because she read this book and she's troubled. And also the party scene when I was younger, I always thought, you know, she comes downstairs and she says, you're going to die up there (laughs) for some reason when I was younger and like couldn't analyze movies quite as well as I can as an adult. I always thought she was talking about Burke or Karis or somebody, even though neither of them were in that scene. Yeah, because uh, that's what she, I thought too. She's talking to the astronaut. Oh. In the book, it's st- straight. It, like, And you kind of can tell because the astronaut's the guy in the film who reacts to her statement. But in the novel, it's like, speaks directly to the astronaut. That makes sense. And it makes so much more sense. I don't know why... Like I get my like lizard brain just never, I just, I think it's because after watching the movie, you know, Burke dies, you know, Karis dies. You just kind of like put that into them. Well, and they die up there upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, that, I mean, I learned that today. <laughs> Reagan wears a diaper a lot. It's real sad. Um, the Carl, the housekeeper man, um, mm-hmm. he's got more of a storyline. And most of this centers on Karis. I think both the film and the book. Karis is really the main character, I think. And fi- I also I read that William Peter Blatty modeled the character of Karis after himself. And it makes that make a little bit more sense because like if I was writing a novel in which the main character was modeled after me, I would probably make her important also. <laughs> I get it. That's interesting. Yeah. And it makes sense. Well, and I I like what we do see of Reagan's physical condition in the movie, like at one point, I think she's got an, a nasogastric tube in because she's obviously not eating or getting any fluids. Her skin is like swollen in places because I'm sure it's infected. And then it's also like sallow because she's starved and she's like gray and her lips are all chapped <laughs> and raw and disgusting. And yeah. Yeah. They show the characters like when they see Reagan or like when she's opening her mouth at one point, like obviously a terrible smell is coming out of her because you can see the, the actors like yeah. you know, react to the to the smell, which I think is is cool. Like that's something that I didn't notice on first watches. At one point in the book, she's like being Dennings or Pazuzu is is performing as Dennings and is insulting Carl with like the Nazi insults and stuff. And then he makes the room, he like farts and makes the room smell like sauerkraut as he's like making fun of. And so like, it's, you're kind of like, what? This is kooky. Um, But then you're just, I just, I think that's honestly, I think that's really creepy. Like the book is, I find books more atmospheric than movies because you have to put in more work. Yeah. And like, this is not definitely not a movies versus books anything because I, I love movies but I think the exorcist novel is scarier than the movie and that's saying something considering this is this is one of the scariest movies of all time the yeah. book is so eerie I think I sent you a picture once of a quote that I had ended up highlighting and it was a uh, it's a it was like the the part where Reagan's in her bed and she's like, what are you doing? And Reagan says, oh, my bed was shaking. And she puts her to sleep. And the last sentence of this chapter was, what looked like morning was the beginning of endless night. And I line. think that so it's such a good line. There were a lot of really great lines. And I just think that's so interesting. And you have to imagine all of that happening. And you have to put yourself in the mindset of this mother who's watching her child go through something unimaginable. And it's, it is beautifully acted in film but you are the one using your imagination and I think that makes it so much more eerie I'd love to read it I I mean I I like to be scared and books can do that in a way that sometimes 
and like you said, this is not a book versus movie thing, right. but I, I think that, yeah, when you're reading it and it's in your head, it's, it's, it's something insane. else. Well, and it also like, it gets into the parts of you that are scary or like that, that scare you specifically. I mean, you know, cause you'll, you know, your lizard brain will tap into the parts that, <laughs> that happen to resonate with you. Yeah. I like books. You do. You do. I love that about you. Well, and so I have some notes about production. I'll give my notes and then I'd love for you to talk more about what you know about the based on a true story aspect of this case. So, and feel free to chime in at any of these. I know that there are a lot, but I I know that this is what people find really fascinating about The Exorcist. So Shutter Cursed Films, it's a great series on films that had tragedies on set and things like that but there's an episode of cursed films on the exorcist that talks about the deaths and accidents that happened on set but what i want to talk about so there is significant abuse of the actors (laughs) so both ellen burston and linda blair suffered long-term injuries the cut of chris mcneil falling after being slapped is the take where burston was injured and she did not appreciate that that take was used in the movie Uh, Linda Blair was also injured in the harness where she's being sort of like tossed around on the bed and they have, they both have lasting permanent injuries. From that, there's a scene where uh, Karis needs to jump when he hears a phone ring and Jason Miller wasn't giving the shocked look that I guess Friedkin wanted. So without telling anyone, Friedkin shot off a gun in order to get the reaction. So the reaction that we see in the film is not him reacting to the phone, but reacting to a gunshot. Another sort of scenario with Father Dyer, the one who gives Karis his last rites. So the actor, O'Malley, wasn't giving enough emotion in the scene of last rites. So Friedkin slapped him hard and then made him go do the scene. And another note about abuse, um, Friedkin wanted to show Reagan's room was cold, so cold that you could see the actor's breath. So he had the room refrigerated and it was absolutely freezing for the actors and crew. And I think they said they could only shoot for like three minutes at a time because it was so cold. Yeah. And I I think uh, thinking about it is interesting because it's very much like um, Alfred Hitchcock and Stanley Kubrick and those filmmakers who, who did all those things. And in Leap of Faith, he even says that he regrets doing a lot of those things. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting. You've got like 40 years, 50 years of hindsight to think about it. And he was like, yeah, probably shouldn't have done that. Wouldn't do it today. <laughs> and um, Kubrick, did you know that he did like before watching, did you know that he almost directed that? I did not know. Um, I like the shining. I would have hated that. I would have. <laughs> oh, if I would have hated it. I, I can't in this moment picture what a Kubrick exorcist would look like. But knowing what I do, having watched Leap of Faith a couple times, I know how much thought Freed can put in. So it's just like, I refuse, you know? <laughs> well, like, look, I mean, I love, like I said, I love the film The Shining, but as an adaptation of the book The Shining, no, thank you. <laughs> like, it's not a good adaptation. So he would have butchered it. Like, maybe it would have been a good movie, but it wouldn't have been a good Exorcist movie. That's fair. Huh. There's a whole rabbit hole to go down there. I love it. One thing that comes up in Leap of Faith and that a lot of people know about The Exorcist is that the voice actress for Possessed Reagan was an actress named Mercedes McCambridge. Um, so to get her voice, they offered to have the voice of the demon be done by a man, but Friedkin really wanted it to be a woman and he knew Mercedes from her radio days. So she was overseen by priests for this process. She was strapped to a chair chain smoked and drank and ate raw eggs and was basically, I mean, like she was going through it to get this voice. Method. 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 <laughs> and then she synced it. I mean, like, cause you know, she, they took what Linda Blair was saying and had Mercedes McCambridge do it so that it would sync up, you know, like voice and, and lips and things like that. And she did a great job and it's fucking scary. And that's where we get so many of those good deliveries of like, I don't know, like, Mother sucks cocks in hell. Yes, in due time. It's so creepy. In terms of effects, we all know that pea soup was used for the vomit, (laughs) that it was very viscous. Um, Friedkin had told Jason Miller that the vomit would hit him in the chest, not the face. So the disgust that we see on Karis's face when he gets creamed with vomit is real. Um, the head spinning around, the sound from that was made from twisting a leather wallet. 
which now when I go back and listen, I'm like, oh yeah, I can hear that. Yeah, you can tell. Yeah. And as Alyssa said, it is as Alyssa said, the spider walk down the scare down the stairs. That's Reagan. Like think about a crab walk, but like, like all the way upside down. So she's back bend, but you're going downstairs. Yeah. She's back bend crawling down the stairs. It's very creepy. And and it was cut from the original version, but has been since added back in. Yeah. I think it was because at the time, like in the seventies, they couldn't, you, you could still see the wires. Uh, but then when they re-released it, they were able to edit out the wires. That's what oh. I read. Well, that's interesting. I did not know that part. And another effect, they used a body double for some of the scenes, including the sexualized, like, let Jesus fuck you and, and lick me scenes. Yeah. Which is good, because they didn't they, need... Uh, she was a child. Because she was a child, yeah. <laughs> and then just two more, and then I'll ask you about your... The 1949's death, but so there's a lot of talk about subliminal images and sounds, and they go into this on the Leap of Faith documentary, but they use flashed images, kind of sort of like the first examples of quick cuts in horror to sort of do, I don't know, it's, it's not subliminal because we, we see it sort of played outright, but that's, I guess, the way that people choose to interpret it, but we see quick cuts of Pazuzu. We do get layering of sounds, which I love. So the demon sounds are layered sounds of Mercedes McCambridge pigs, dogs, rodents, and bees. And those sounds are said to activate sort of the primal parts of our brain to be afraid. So we're already like primed to be on edge and scared. And I think that's just so fucking cool. And then this fact came up, uh, I believe in the Cursed Films episode, but the radiographer in one of the diagnostic scenes, he has a speaking role, one of the guys that's running tests on Reagan. Um, He murdered someone in real life. He sure did. Multiple someones, I believe. Oh, shit. Yeah, he... Yeah. Yeah. So if you're into, like, the, the cursed films aspect, or if you want to learn more about this dude, I, I didn't go back and look up his story because, like, you know, fuck that guy. He should have killed him. But, uh, yeah, fucking crazy. So I actually also have, if you don't mind, I yeah. there are things that I noticed. Um, specifically the pig sounds. Now, this is just me reading way too into it because nobody's ever talked about this. But it made me think of the story in the Bible when Jesus casts those demons out of that possessed person and puts them into pigs and makes little pigs jump off the cliff. And they actually mention that in the novel. They talk about that specific passage in relation to Karis and like, basically that's where he gets the idea from. Um, so I, like, it was probably not on purpose, but whenever they talked about the layering of, of sounds, I was like, pigs, demon pigs. Um, <laughs> I also, bet it is. That's awesome. Um, the, the flashes of Pazuzu were failed makeup tests for Possessed Reagan. I thought that was really interesting. Nice. Where are my notes? The first spoken words in the film are Arabic and they're saying God is great. And that was just a coincidental shot, but I just think that makes, it's just just delicious. It's just delicious. I've said that three times already, but it's so good. It is though. That's awesome. Um, And I also, uh, (laughs) something that he said that I I wrote down, I quoted it. He said, nothing is more shocking than the masturbation scene. Another beat that I wrote in all caps, understatement of the century. (laughs) It's so much. Um, he also said, the truth is we don't know anything. And I think that's perfect because we don't, we don't know. It's everything's up to faith and what we believe. And I do think it's true that we don't know anything. Um, one last bit of symbolism that I think is very interesting in the film, the um, holy medal that is seen is a St. Joseph's medal. And I know very little about Catholicism, but I do know that every saint represents something. So I went and looked it up and St. Joseph, it's, it's, it's jo- the Joseph. Oh, it's, the Mr. Mr. Jesus, it's yes. his, um, his <laughs> earthly dad. Um, so his one of the reasons people wear his medal is to ward against doubt and hesitation, and I think that's so interesting because they changed the saint from the book to the film. In the in the novel, it is a Saint Christopher medallion, and so I also looked that up, and that is used. Let's see, Saint Christopher is against. Oh, man. Oh, holy deaths. Yes, it's uh, St. Christopher represents a holy death. And I think that that's so cool (laughs) for (laughs) what happens with Father Karras ultimately at the end of the novel. Both of those are cool. Yeah, and I think they both could mean a lot. Could just be a complete coincidence. I'm just really into symbolism. 
In the scene, there's a scene prior to all of this happening, prior to Karis's mom dying, where he's talking about losing his faith to another priest. And so, like, that could really fit in with St. Joseph. So, I also know that um, Friedkin and Blatty argued a lot about Karis's death. Um, in the novel, it happens off screen or off page, I guess. <laughs> so, in the novel, it shifts suddenly in narration from Karis being possessed by the demon to Sharon and Chris downstairs hearing him yell, no, and then the crash of the window. Mm. And William Friedkin was like, I hate that. <laughs> I, like, we need to see it. We need to see that struggle. And he argued back and forth because he wanted, Friedkin wanted Karis to still have the face of a possessed person as he jumps out the window and William Peter Blatty straight up was like, I will not let you adapt my book. If you ruin this, this death has to be Karis's free will and choice. And I think that's interesting. That is interesting. And I feel like, I mean, like I want to side with, with Blatty on that one. Yes, I agree. And it ties into that holy death. I think that's a very holy death. I know that in the Catholic faith, you know, suicide is a sin, but it's almost like a, a, type of martyrdom it is here and i mean and he does in the movie at least get to have his last rites with uh, yeah. father dyer and he asks for forgiveness in his his way um for father dyer was definitely in love with father Karras. i'm just throwing that oh, out there. a thousand percent yeah. um there's also <laughs> a line in the novel where father dyer basically admits to being gay and i was like yes i knew it vindication <laughs> Wait, no, I, 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 I actually genuinely really like that guy's character he's so nice He's great. I love that he's one of the last folks that we see. You know, Reagan looks up at him and she doesn't remember the events of her possession or exorcism, but she looks up and sees Father Dyer's collar and obviously makes sort of the the connection for his collar and then Father Karras and Father Marin and gives him a kiss on the cheek and it's very sweet. All right, so Roland Doe. Um, so William Peter Blatty was, I think he was a, wasn't he a student at Georgetown? He was either a student there or he was living in the area, and he heard the story of the exorcism and possession of Roland Doe or Robbie Doe, multiple um, pseudonyms. So in 1949, this young boy got really close with his aunt, who was a spiritualist. They called spooky people at the time. (laughs) They started using a Ouija board, and he... It's very similar to the book and the movie, you know, started hearing thumps and furniture moving and stuff levitating and flying. And slowly things got way worse. He was suspected of doing it himself for a long time. And then finally they were like, okay, we got to get this kid, an old priest and a young priest. Let's get this taken care of. He was actually exercised in multiple cities. They moved him to St. Louis for a while to stay away. They were thinking maybe some fresh air will help them. Ultimately, he was successfully exercised and went on his merry way. I think the actual guy died like a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. I watched, uh, if you're interested and if you have Discovery Plus, they did like a little documentary called The Exorcism of Rolando. Um, I watched it, but I have some problems with the story. I definitely believe in the concept of possession. I believe that anything is possible. Just like William Friedkin said, we don't know anything. Mm-hmm. However, all of the proof of the Roland Doe exorcism and possession, are, it's very anecdotal. There are no longer any living witnesses. Mm-hmm. And they recently uncovered the diary of one of the priests who attended the exorcism. And if I knew 100% that that's the guy who wrote this you know, diary, I would be more inclined to believe it. But even at the time, there were a lot of people who really believed that it was a a kid who needed attention, which is sad and probably true. Um, This one author, he questioned a lot of these claims. He quote, to to quote, he said he was simply a spoiled, disturbed bully who threw deliberate tantrums to get attention or to get out of school. Nobody ever actually heard the voice voice change or no, like uh, no priests. Mm. A lot of his symptoms are easily explained. It's, you know, there's a difference between something that is inexplicable that is happening, like what was happening with Reagan. There was, you know, he would get these marks and words on his body, kind of like Reagan's help me. Mm-hmm. But it was always on places that he could easily reach himself. And they wouldn't ever happen 
when he was restrained. So I think that, is it possible? Sure. sure. Is it probable? Not likely. Most of, like I said, most of his symptoms of his possession weren't completely explainable. And, but it is very similar to the story of Reagan. And you can definitely, you know, when you read about it, it's, there's a Wikipedia article on it, y'all. It's, it's easy <laughs> to find. Um, or watch this little documentary. And the only problem that I have with the documentary, because it was interesting and you learn a lot about the story is there's no counterpoint. It's all very for the exorc- the possession being real mm-hmm. with very little um, examination of the counter arguments against it. Well, and it's, it's, it's so timely that this all comes back up because we just had The Conjuring 3 come out and the, the whole concept there is the devil made me do it and trying to prove or disprove an exorcism. We had that in 2005 with the exorcism of Emily Rose movie. So I feel like... Also based on a real possession right. exorcism. And those are so interesting to me. And I agree with you and Friedkin that like, I don't know anything. I wouldn't pretend that I did know for sure or not for sure what could happen spiritually to another person. But it is, it's just like, regardless of what... I guess like the the cause was or what was going on. It's just so sad. It's so sad what happened to that boy. It's so sad what happens to Reagan in this movie. And it's just like, so, I mean, you were talking about having sort of, you know, you're sort of put in Chris's shoes in the book, just feeling so terrible for what's going on for her. Just all of these characters just put through so much suffering. And there's this quite lovely scene between Karis and Marin where he's like, why, why this girl? Why, why is this happening? And Father Marin in the novel, it's much more, um, it's a much longer conversation. Father Kara says, what would be the purpose of possession? What's the point? And Marin says, who can know? Who can hope to know? I think the demon's target is not the possessed. It is us, the observers. And the point is to make us despair and to reject our own humanity, to see ourselves as ultimately bestial, vile and putrescent without dignity. And there lies the heart of it, perhaps an unworthiness. For I think belief in God is not a matter of reason. It is a finally a matter of love, of accepting the possibility that God could ever love us. And I know I'm just going to quote you any of it, but the one that really kind of got me is he says, I tend to see possession most often in the little things, Damien, in the senseless, petty spites and misunderstandings, the cruel and cutting word that leaps unbidden to the tongue between friends, between lovers, between husbands and wives. Enough of these, and we have no need of Satan to manage our wars. These we manage ourselves for ourselves. It's very Marin dropping bombs. And then going and dying like two pages later. And they, they they do that sort of succinctly in the movie because I think Father Karras asks him in the movie, like, why why her? Why this girl? And his his brief answer is to to cause suffering for us to suffer. But the way it's spelled out in the book is is very beautiful and it's sad. lovely. And like yeah. and like if I were a person of more faith, that would I can see that like touching someone so deeply. Um and it touched me, even though I'm not religious. Yeah, no, I like I felt it. I mean, if I were like fucking Ed Warren or Lorraine Warren, I'd probably like get it tattooed on my fucking face. (laughs) And and I think, you know, it's such a it feels silly to talk about. But like the power of love, I think, is so important in most narratives. And it is evident in The Exorcist, whether it's the power of spiritual love, familial love, the love of a mother for her daughter. Mm hmm or just love between people. I think that that is so, such a powerful thing. Man, it's very Harry Potter, huh? <laughs> no, but it, I mean, and that's, there's a reason it's universal. And there's a reason, there's a reason that there are a couple reasons that this movie sticks around so much. One of it being that it is so shockingly scary. And the other, because that that theme is so transcendent, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, so speaking of reception, I did have a, a few facts about the release and reception that I wanted to go over before we before we wrap up. So this was released the day after Christmas, 1973. People lined up in freezing weather for hours to see it. Um, I think they said about 25% of the people they interviewed said that they had read the book and the rest were there for the hype, you know, because it was just, it was just wild. So critics and others lobbied for an X rating, but due to how expensive it was to produce, it cost 
almost twice as much as originally budgeted. It took twice as long. They needed to recoup some of the money. So they went with an R rating because if you get X, you, you know, you're just not going to get enough screens. The movie blew up anyway and ended up grossing a ton of money. It was the top grossing horror movie for a very long time, eventually eclipsed by the Sixth Sense and 2017's It, but very significant in terms of box office. So in the theater, viewers fainted and vomited and some theaters kept ambulances on standby. There were reports of miscarriages and heart attacks, but I don't think those were ever confirmed, but there was definitely lore about, you know, it causing all these major health events. It was the first horror film nominated for Best Picture, and it did win Academy Awards for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound. Uh, it was selected to be in the Library of Congress for its cultural significance. And it did bring about a fascination with demons, possession, and exorcism, spawning a whole subgenre of horror. And one sort of like unfortunate part of its legacy is this like the trauma of Linda Blair. So Linda Blair played Reagan, and she was a kid, obviously, and not just from sort of the abuse that she had on set with like her injuries and things like that, but also with the way that the media treated her. If you watch Cursed Films, I think it's there that I saw her interviewed, but they treated her as if she herself was demonic and not, you know, she was like a, a child actress. And instead of holding, I guess, Friedkin or the production company responsible for, you know, these reactions that people were reporting, they, they, they very much put that on Linda Blair, who was a child at the time. And that's really fucked up. She, I think she works with animals now, but she, she does not like to talk about, she doesn't like to talk about it. It seems Which is unfortunate because like, I would give anything to talk to her about, that. <laughs> <laughs> but I will respect that. We can hang out with some sloths, Linda, if you want. Yeah, we don't get, so Linda Blair is not in the, in the um, series, the Exorcist series I talk about. We do get Gina Davis, who is, is just great, but um, so you brought up themes of the power of love and I, I, just to relate things back to the theme of the podcast, I want to read a quick passage from Bitchfest, which is an anthology of essays from Bitch Magazine. This is an older book. Um, I think it was from like 2006, but Bitch is an amazing publication. I'd love for everyone to support it. Um, and this is an article from summer 2003, an article called Bloodletting, Female Adolescence in Modern Horror Films by Tammy Oler. So she explains how the exorcist fits in with monstrous menstruation. And I'll just read a quick little passage, but she just captured it so well. So she's talking about monstrous menstruation, Carrie, gender snaps, Audrey Rose was mentioned. She says, no film bears this out quite like The Exorcist, widely regarded as one of the scariest movies ever. While menstruation is not explicit in the film, the story's preoccupation with blood and bodily fluids, as well as the adolescent anxieties that Linda Blair's Reagan McNeil faces, puberty, divorce, and absentee father, jealousy for her mother's attention, suggests that the possession is invoked to mask other forces at work. Throughout the film, Reagan's small adolescent body is subjected to as much abuse by her would-be by would saviors as by her demon possessors. We watch with equal horror as the excruciating battery of medical testing Reagan endures and the disgusting manipulations of her demon possessors. Reagan transforms from girl to female portal so thoroughly that her characters only cry for help as literally written on her body, help me, spelled out in the raised skin of her stomach. Mm. Yeah, so like I, you know, we talk a lot on the show about how possession movies fit this monstrous menstruation trope well, feeling as if your body's not your own personality and hormone changes, feeling downright demonic, a fascination with, you know, bodily fluids um, and confrontations with loved ones. So it's all, it's all there. And yeah, it's fucking I mean, it, it's a, the, the whole, she, she's being violated in multiple fronts. She's being spiritually violated. She's being physically violated. There are also like quick content warning for sexual assault talk. Um, there are hints throughout the novel, especially, but you can kind of get it in the movie that she may be being abused by Burke Dennings and possibly her father. There are like some small references to this concept. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's especially evident in the fact that the demon is named Captain Howdy and her father's name is Howard. Oh, I see. I didn't know that. And there's also, oh, I just thought about this one scene in the novel that truly terrified me because of this implication. There is a scene where she is running through the house and hides behind her mother and she's screaming, he's chasing me, he's chasing me. And like hiding, cowering behind Chris and like pointing at nothing saying, Captain Howdy is chasing me. 
Oh, that's awful. And this poor, yeah, this poor girl is just being like, she, and she's at that age of adolescence of like, you know, pubescent adolescence and just goes through all of that. And it's unimaginable horror. That's brutal. I, it's interesting that you say that in the series, the TV series, Captain Howdy is a physical person or it's, you know, he's represented by a physical actor at least. And there are scenes where the possessed person, the possessed young woman in the, in the show who is not Regan, um, she's like made to kiss Captain Howdy. So there is sort of like some, you know, weird assaulty stuff going on there, but it's, oh man. There's so many layers to this and to layers to just like this experience. (laughs) Like it all comes back to Shrek, really. I, I, uh, we went over most of the scenes and symbols, I think, but Alyssa, I, I did, I know that one of your favorite scenes is the shot of Regan up against the purple light of the bedroom where she's got like one arm up. I love that you remember this about me. (laughs) It is one of my favorite shots of just film in general. I think it's beautiful. I knew it was one of your favorites and I just wanted to, to touch on that. It's a really, it's also a very sad scene. It's powerful because it's like, Oh God, like she's, she like at that point in the movie, you're like, she might die. Like it's brutal, but I just, um, I wanted to open it up. If there are any other scenes or like, you know, shots that you wanted to talk about. Um, I really love the, I really love the scene at the beginning when father Marin finds the Pazuzu head and just you can you what I love, and I think it's brilliant filmmaking and writing is that it's never laid out exactly what he's picturing, but you know that he's got this impending sense of doom. And it's like he's having a premonition almost. He knows what's gonna happen. He knows from the minute he walks into that house that he is not leaving. Yeah. It's and it's hard because like we see Father Marin taking his pills. He's a very old man and he's like shaking when he's drinking tea in Iraq. So it's like you know that he's ill, sort of, but you also know that his hand is trembling because he knows the shit is about to blow up. <laughs> you know that you know that um, Max von Sydow was only like 44. No way. They put makeup on him to make him look old. He looks old as shit in that movie. Fuck, dude, he's but he's like fairly young. And I think that's hilarious to me like I think it's brilliant um, I did not know that he looks yeah. so old <laughs> and obviously the iconic uh lamppost yes shot I think is amazing I desperately want like a canvas print of it mm. so like so people come in my house and be like wow look at this beautiful print and I'm like oh yeah that's the cover of the exorcist <laughs> um but I don't you know and I, I can't tell you why I love that one shot of Reagan on the bed so much not when you can see the statue of Pazuzu. I don't care for that. But no, it, but when it's like her silhouette. In the back, it's, it's almost holy. Yeah. And I think that there's something about that shot of just, you don't really know if it's Reagan or Pazuzu doing that, but just the reaching for something, whether it's the demon reaching for, I don't know, demon power or Reagan <laughs> reaching for salvation. There's just something so beautiful aesthetically about it. Yeah. And I mentioned it earlier, but another favorite clip scene shot is the, the one of Father Karras with the words like only front lit on his face. And he looks like a Rembrandt painting. And he's such a handsome man. Like he's such an interesting he, looking dude. Like, yeah, he's got an interesting face. He yeah. does look like a boxer. He does look like a boxer. <laughs> um, well, one that came up a lot for Friedkin in Leap of Faith was there's a scene with Detective Kinderman, I think is his name. Um, there's a detective in the movie that's sort of aware of what's going on. And he comes to the McNeil household to sort of talk with Chris about what's going on. And you can tell that he's suspicious of Reagan. And Chris is obviously very protective of what's going on. And there is sort of a drawn out scene that's really tense that I... Like, it, it wouldn't have been one that I cared much about, but Friedkin, the way he yeah, talked about directing about it, it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really, like, how thoughtful and impactful and how tense that scene really was. That was pretty cool. I liked that. Yeah. And I, I love the way that the tension gets broken. I think it's very cool. Cause yeah, it's he's like, like, can I have an autograph? <laughs> it's so good. I, in terms of, like, for me, final thoughts, there's so much to know, love, and 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 dislike about this movie just in terms of the way it was, you know, made and, and the things that maybe happened on set. But it's it's one of my favorite movies. It's 
It's really good. <laughs> I definitely recommend Cursed Films as well as Leap of Faith. Both are on Shudder. Shudder sponsor the show. Um, I love the series. I just love this movie. It's it's a classic for a reason. And if you're interested in the book at all, it is like $3.99 on Kindle. I know that Jeff Bezos is the devil, but like $3.99 <laughs> on Kindle. We're all victims to capitalism here. There's and no ethical consumption under capitalism. We do what we have to do to survive. The, uh, the audiobook is narrated by a William Peter Blatty. And so I cool. love it when the authors narrate their own books. There's like an extra layer of just like love. Here, bringing it back to love. But you can you can like feel it, you know, when you're listening to an author read their own work. That'll be you one day. Okay. <laughs> so well, speaking of Alyssa, um, we can, if you have any other puberty stories to share, I, I would encourage you to, to bring those up. But before her, I would love for you to plug what you do for Bloody Good Horror, speaking of books. Uh, I run the Bloody Good Horror Book Club. I've been running it for about a year. We are currently reading a book called The Family Plot by Sherry, I think, Priest. Um, it sounds really interesting. I also very recently started writing reviews for the site of books. I haven't written any in the last couple months because I am a teacher and it's been the end of the school year. And I also just started teaching summer school. So I've been very busy, but we've also just recently, the last two books we've read have been older. We read Ring and we read Misery. So like, I feel nice. like we didn't have anything really new to bring to the table. So I haven't written anything yet. We are on Reddit r slash bgh book club because i forgot goodreads existed for a long time and we just didn't really want to use something owned by amazon and the interface sucks uh it is a bad interface (laughs) it's not very user-friendly i've also shifted a lot of us have shifted over to using an app called storygraph which is a black owned business um and it's really really cool so you can track reading much in the same way you can on goodreads you can even import your goodreads data so you don't have to sit there like me, who I've read like quite a few hundred books in the last few years. Um, I didn't have to do this one by one. And you can you can do like um, quarter, like point values. So instead of just doing whole, like one star, two star, three star, you can do like 4.25. Um, nice. You can also tag for um, like keywords. So if somebody specifically wants to read a book, uh, like since I finished rereading The Exorcist, I tagged demonic possession. <laughs> <laughs> like if somebody wants to read a novel about possession, they can go ahead and do that. Um, and you can also tag for content warnings. And I think that's incredibly valuable in an interface because it allows you to prevent yourself from being tr- like triggered by something, especially a book like this that has a, I tagged so many things. Yeah. Um, Rightfully so. Yeah. And on one other note, if you like The Exorcist and you like books, there is a great novel called A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. It's very short and it has a lot of very similar themes. It centers around a girl whose family underwent in a huge possession-related tragedy um, after their, their family was filmed for a reality TV show when her older sister was possessed. And it's very, very good. And it's been optioned. It's going to be adapted for Netflix, I think. Nice. I highly recommend it. It's very good. I think the last exorcism book I read was My Best Friend's Exorcism by Grady Hendrix. (laughs) I listened to the audiobook of that. It was great. It's very sweet. It's very good. It's it's like Ready Player One, but better and spooky. Because you get like the 80s nostalgia, but you're not listening to a white guy just jerk it about how much (laughs) the 80s. It's so, it's really good. And I think that one's being turned into a movie. Um, I'd love to do the book for this show because it fits so well for the theme. But yes. Well, would you like to hear my period fact? It's a cool one. I'm ready. Okay. So since The Exorcist is from the 70s, I thought I'd share a femcare procedure also from that era. Um, And one of our fans, Danielle, actually, um, she tagged me on Twitter today with this like exact same fact. And I was like, I'm reading that tonight on the show. (laughs) So this is called menstrual extraction. And it was briefly a way that people managed their periods in the 70s. So a period is the shedding of your uterine lining over several days. In the 70s, a device was created that could effectively shed that lining in 60 seconds, so they started calling menstrual extraction the 60-second period. What would happen is at the onset of your period, or if your period was late the day your period was supposed to start, what you do is hop up on a table and a friend, not a doctor, just a friend at home, would insert a tube called <laughs> would insert a tube called a cannula into your uterus. That tube is attached to a collection bottle and syringe, and your friend would pump out the blood. 
So what the uterus pushes out naturally over a few days, your friend would pump out manually in 60 seconds. So in the 70s, before we had self-adhering pads and slim fit tampons, this seemed like a pretty neat alternative to dealing with the pins and belts and stuff of the time. You'd also eliminate cramping, stains, and if you're someone who chooses not to have sex while you're on your period, it would, you know, you wouldn't have to worry about that. The procedure fell out of favor for two reasons. One, doing that presents the opportunity for infection, especially doing it at home with friends in an environment that wasn't sterile. And secondly, anti-choice groups rallied against it when the procedure became known as a mini abortion because Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> because if a woman is pregnant, um and that early on, she wouldn't know it. It would technically be an abortion. So they fell out of favor. But for a hot minute in the 70s, they were all the rage. Very interesting. I know, Alyssa, you don't like the feeling of blood coming out of you. I hate it. So, I hate like, it so much. <laughs> like, ugh, just the concept. It, like, so I have, I know this is a weird, like, way to get to this point. I have ADHD. And I'm like hyper aware of certain sounds and sensations and textures. I have a lot of weird food texture problems. And I think that kind of falls under that. Just when I'm on my period, which like, I like getting over that whole situation. I'm hyper aware of my body just at all times as a big woman with self-esteem issues. And then so ever more so when you're all sensitive, you're feeling weird and just like if I happen to have to wear like a pad or even like a panty liner, cause like we're at the beginning and we're not sure what's happening yet. And I'm standing in my classroom teaching and I like will stop mid sentence and just be like, and on page 30. And then like, I just feel it and I can't think about anything else. Yeah. And I know tampons aren't necessarily great for you, but I, my body, I cannot angle myself to use a cup. <laughs> my stomach is too big. And I guess I'm not there yet. I'm trying to work up the bravery to try. Well, and, you know, it's, everything's different for everybody. I'm not a cup or a tampon user because of my own sort of comfort issues. But, yeah, I mean, like, I can see where this would have appealed to people, you know, like getting it done and not like I don't mind being on my period. But I know for some people it is truly miserable. And I can see where people would be like, yeah, 60 seconds, vacuum it out of me. And like, I have no problems being naked in front of my friends. I'm just Andromeda, just like get that period right out of Alyssa. Yeah. I mean, I did ask her, we were watching, we, I, I got her to start watching New Girl with me. Um, Andromeda is my best, is one of my best friends. And so we started watching New Girl. She hates Zoe Deschanel. So it like, that's a testament of friendship that I got her to watch this show. It is. Um, but there's like a whole part where Schmidt breaks his penis and he has to wear like a shower diaper, like cast thing. And he gets... Zoe Deschanel's character to like use a back scratcher on his butt because he just can't reach it and I just turned to her because I was like leaning against her because we're friends and I just like hey would you scratch my butt like that and she was like yeah (laughs) baby like I have no problem being naked in front of my friends I don't know if I want to like turkey baster your your uterus out I don't know if I want to do that I like I would if my best friend asked me to like if Ashley or Andromeda or even you I would do that for you boo I would feel real weird about it but like I would oh I would lose my mind I'd be like "Ah!" I would just sit there and be like this is weird (laughs) this is weird welcome to my downstairs mix up (laughs) I hope my neighbors can hear everything I hope they can. They, you, you hear their baby enough. You can, they can hear our. Oh no, we're I'm supposed to be the good neighbors right now, not the screaming baby neighbor. These are gotcha. my fun neighbors who have a cute dog. Well, then they they can be a part of the show too. <laughs> Lila, how do you feel about the exorcist? How do you feel about menstrual extraction, little dog? It's just uh, the whole time you were describing it. Just, <laughs> like, it's not a judgment thing at all. It's just the, just the, the imagining the sensation of just, I can't. Yeah, it's, it's something. And it's so funny. So it's mentioned in a couple of the books that I've been using for research, one of which is Flow, which has been just a phenomenal read. And the other is Curse, A Cultural History of Menstruation. And that book is from the 70s. So Flow talks about menstrual extraction sort of as this like relic of like this weird moment in the 70s where people were, were doing it. And Curse presents it as this like, a modern woman's way to manage her period. And it's like, this will revolutionize the way we handle things. And it's like, oh, well, 
If there were a safe and sterile way to do that now, I would potentially be interested in it. A potential candidate. Yes. Under the right circumstances. Well, and I I thought of you just because I know that you really, you do have sensation stuff around periods and that, you know, a lot of people do. And I can see where, especially if someone has like intense cramping issues or if they have, you know, endometriosis Endometriosis, type issues. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, it well, wouldn't like, be for I, me, but I can 90% see. 90% sure I have PCOS. Like my doctor and I have like narrowed it down basically to PCOS. She hasn't sat and told me, but we all know it's true. It's an exclusionary um, diagnosis anyway. So it's like, yeah, yeah, you probably have it. Same. Yeah. Well, I mean, like we checked everything. We even checked my thyroid and, and my thyroid's fine. And then I start, oh, look, wow. Started taking birth control. Magically more or less normal periods. Better than the time. I think I mentioned this on the Audrey Rose episode. 93 days. Insanity. It was miserable. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we're not in a 93 day period right now. No, nine, not we're not 93 day fiancéing this. I can't. <laughs> well, Alyssa, thank you so much. I you are always incredible, and I was so excited to have you on this episode because I know how much this movie means to you. So, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. We are um, Plug It Up Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Please like, follow, subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and send your period and coming-of-age stories to pluguituppod at gmail.com. Thank you, and spooky bleeding. Plug it up. Plug It Up was created, hosted, researched, and executive produced by me, Caitlin Grant. Creative support, audio engineering, and post-production were provided by Eric Newell. Creative support and thematic direction were provided by Elizabeth Kyle. The Plug It Up theme song was written and performed by Elizabeth Kyle and produced and mixed by Eric Newell. Art design, including the logo, is by Darren Heinerman. And I want to give special thanks to John Schnars and the Bloody Good Horror crew. I'd also like to give thanks to the guests, my family, and friends for their support and encouragement. Plug It Up is a Bloody Good Horror production.